Hello, do you like New Japan Pro Wrestling? Are you a Shin Nihon freak? If so, check out the Super Jcast with Joel and Damon on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. And even if you fucking hate New Japan Pro Wrestling, listen to the Super Jcast anyway. Not just for our great show reviews, analysis, and pastrami sandwiches, mm-hmm. but there's also usually some dick jokes somewhere in the obligatory opening 30 minutes of absolute nonsense we chat about every single week. That's the Super Jcast for all the best talk about New Japan Pro Wrestling, crisps, and pornography. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Welcome back to another episode of The Good, The Bad, and The Hungy here on the Voice of Wrestling Podcasting Network. I'm your host, Tyler Fornis, and with me today is a special guest. They're the host of Wrestling Omakase on the Voice of Wrestling Podcasting Network and a big fan and expert in the realm of Japanese pro wrestling. They are John Carroll. How are you today? How's it going, Tyler? Expert. Wow, I'm an expert. I guess that's... uh... I don't know. I guess that's accurate. I guess I don't. It's it's really what to hear yourself be introduced as an expert in something is kind of weird because you always get that little pang of like imposter syndrome. But I mean, I've been watching this shit for twenty two years. I guess I, I guess it works. <laughs> well, I I, th- I think it's a fair description, and I kind of understand what you mean. Being you know, myself, like in, immersed in both wrestling and um professional football and how i kind of dabble in both and like somebody will call me an expert and i I just look around and i'm like man there's a lot of people who know more than me are you sure you want to say that so i totally yeah. understand what you're saying uh yeah. but i'm really excited to have you on john because your views on american pro wrestling are i i and i don't really know how to describe this other than different and i love being able to have conversations with people who view things differently especially than fred and i and let, let's kind of jump into things because we were talking pre-show about the attendances in this company and we can start off with the news about uh, all in and somebody had put in uh, the british equivalent of a, um, the freedom of information act request uh, for the turnstile number, which is how many people actually enter Wembley Stadium. And it was not 81,035. It was um, under 73,000. I don't have the exact number in front of me, but that's that's a difference of around 9,000 people. And according to, I believe it was Brandon Thurston of Rexelnomics, they usually have around a 10 to 15% turnstile rate where that amount of people that bought tickets don't actually show up to the event. What, what's your take on this? Because we know AEW, and I know you have some numbers here, has had some struggles with ticket sales and actually getting people into the buildings. But these are people that have already purchased tickets, not trying to get more people on top of that. It's it's a very unique circumstance. Yeah, I mean, it's very unique, especially if you're Will Ospreay and got the number tattooed on your arm and then <laughs> posted, that, posted that video to Twitter where he's like, bruv. I, I can't do it for this accent, but he's like, bro, what's going on? Um, and then deleted it apparently, which is a kind of funny, but yeah, I don't know. I don't really have a great take on this. I don't really know why 
the number is so much lower. I mean, I guess it's some combination of, um, you know, the secondary market, like the scalpers who bought a lot of tickets and thinking, you know, they see, I guess if you're a scalper, right, you see 40,000 tickets get sold very quickly for this event. You're like, well, there's going to be a lot of demand. So I got to buy up all these tickets. And then, you know, maybe demand just kind of petered out the end and, you know, these, they just, for these inflated prices, um, you know, they, they were, I mean, they were still, I believe you can correct me if I'm wrong. There were still face value tickets available at the end, I think. So if you wanted to buy a ticket to all in, I believe you could buy it. Like it, it never sold out, right? Like it never, even for their allotment available, like there were always more tickets available to be sold. Right. I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they and, continue to open up more and more upper deck sections as they continue to sell more tickets. So if you really wanted to go, you had lot you had face value options the entire time. So the scalpers, you know, they may have just gotten caught with their pants down on this one where, you know, they bought up all these tickets thinking it was gonna be a complete sellout and they would have to turn to the secondary market. And, you know, they just didn't that that didn't materialize. Um so that would explain some of it. And some of it is probably just like people who buy shit and don't show up. Right. I mean, some of these tickets were cheap enough that you could have bought it on a whim and later on just decided you didn't want to go or you didn't want to pay to go to, maybe you would have had to travel. You didn't want to pay to go to London. I mean, they were like 25 to $50, the equivalent in Euro and in uh, British pounds anyway, of like 25 to $50, which is like a price where, you know, if you don't feel like going that day, it's not the end of the world. If, you know, you, you obviously you wasted your money, but you didn't waste that much money. So, you know, I, it shouldn't be that surprising, I guess, with an event this big. Um, but I guess just the sheer number of tickets that it added up to, um, you know, has, has did it's a, it's a he- it's a shocking number, I guess, to see on screen, even if, you know, when you think about it, there's probably some decent explanations. Yeah, it is a, a really interesting number because you, you could theoretically say, okay, if you had like 81,000 tickets distributed and not sold, you could say, okay, like you had about 10% in comps. And let's say none of those people showed up. That would make at least a little bit of sense. But, but I guess from my perspective, and I know it, it's far from the only one, buying a ticket to an event especially something like this where you're spending a significant amount of money. And anytime you're a, a member of like the middle class, like the majority of people are, you spend a hundred dollars on something. You're just not going to completely ignore it because that's hundred dollars is a lot of money. Right. And it's probably the people who bought low, very low price tickets and, or like you said, got comp tickets who weren't showing up. Like if you spend, okay, if I spend 20 bucks on a ticket, right, which I think there were tickets that cheap available, and I just mm-hmm. don't feel like going that day, or I don't feel like going to London. Like twenty bucks is twenty bucks. I mean, that's not that big a deal. But like you're saying, a hundred bucks. Yes, obviously you're going to make sure you're there. But yeah, it's it's a very interesting dichotomy. And when you talk about kind of the health of AEW ticket sales, as I drop my wedding wedding ring, as I <laughs> fiddle with it, it, it this company is really struggling with live events and. I don't know if there's a singular explanation, but the one number you brought up to me was there. Um, there's, what is it? The, the Tuesday- I have it in front. I have it in front of me. Yeah. So the yeah, Tuesday dynamite, the title Tuesday and rampage, uh, Tuesday, October 10th in independence, Missouri, 
so far has only sold 1,484 tickets. And that's a show that is now less than a month out. I mean, that's October 10th. So I don't know if it's like, it's doing even worse than a lot of the other Dynamites are. Maybe the weird day being on a Tuesday instead of a Wednesday doesn't help. Um, but yeah, it's a 1484. And the last time they were there was earlier this year, March 22nd for a Dynamite. They did 3,912, which you were saying you thought was the Kenny Omega versus uh, Vikingo you know, show with the, with the where white and blue ropes for the first time too, that Joe, mm-hmm. Joe Lanza crazy. But yeah, I mean, it's 1484. Uh, it's really bad, obviously. Um, and it's not the only bad number they've done recently. I mean, they just did yesterday's dynamite had one of the lowest numbers uh, they've ever drawn. You know, it's like ended up being what 2026, 20, I think was the final number on Russell ticks, something like that. I mean, it was a very bad number. And mm-hmm. that was a, that was in Cincinnati, where again they had previously done better numbers there. Uh, they did something Slam- like eight thousand for the twenty twenty one show when uh, Mox wrestled Minoru Suzuki. Yeah, I mean just just really bad. I mean Grand Slam next week. Uh, the last update I saw was around six thousand, I think, and that's obviously very bad as well. I mean that's way down from the la- even last year, which was already way down from the first year. So I don't. So you, I mean, you when you introduced me, you kind of introduced me as like, here's John. They like Japanese wrestling and they fucking hate American wrestling, which is <laughs> not really true. I mean, I get that. That's not what I meant, but <laughs> it, it, you are you are definitely this definitely isn't your prioritized version of professional wrestling. It's not my favorite. I mean, that's that is for sure. I mean, I do prefer Japanese, but I mean, I like AEW. I mean, people. Um, People in the, the the Voice of Wrestling Discord like to tell me that I hate it, but I like <laughs> AEW. I like the roster. I watch it every week for a reason. Not It's not just because I want to sit. Like, if I hated it, I would treat it the same way I treat WWE, right? Which mm-hmm. is, I don't watch it. I don't. I barely pay attention to what happens. Um, you know, I just, I, I, WWE does not exist to me. I haven't been to a show, a WWE show in like 14 years. Whereas AEW, I just went to, you know, I was just at All Out, you know, a couple weeks ago, or a week, what is like a week and a half ago. So, you know, I like AEW. Um, so it does, I, I don't like that they're doing so badly with the live attendance. It's not like. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting deal with this attendance. And there are a lot of ways to look at it. And the old school approach is. Yeah, you kind of look at the champion and the champion itself. And this, and this is just it. sorry. Uh, anyway, so the theory I would point to, um, you know, probably more than anything else, is, you know, this year they have leaned into the WWE slash sports entertainment stuff more than ever, especially at the top of the card, especially the mm-hmm. MJF Adam Cole thing has leaned in the WWE thing. So they're leaning into that. At the same time, the WWE itself is super hot. I mean, WWE sells tons of tickets now. Other than this past Monday, they do their TV ratings have been better. Um, so WWE is doing very well right now. Mm-hmm. I think if, if you're... They're drawing more fans, and you can see this when... Um, you know, when Collision goes head to head with WWE pay per views, co- the WWE pay per views do way more damage to Collision than, like, you know, a big college football game or, like, 
you know, a, a, a NBA playoffs or whatever. Like it used to be the fact that WWE would not hurt AEW ratings as much as, you know, a major sporting event. Now it seems like WWE hurts them more than a major sporting event. So I, my theory on this is they've lost some fans who were um, into AW because it was the anti-WWE, because it was very different from WWE. And they've gained some fans, especially watching on TV, who are into WWE, WWE and watch AEW as a second promotion now. But those people are not buying tickets to AEW. When those people want to go to a wrestling show, generally they're going to a WWE show. It's not like none yeah. of them will buy tickets to it too, because I've seen um, this year. I mean that that Newark collision, especially the collision in Newark, New Jersey. There were a ton of people who were clearly WWE fans at that show. I mean the fucking yeah chance and uh, you know all this other shit. It's really like if you've been going to AW shows in this in the same area for years, like I have, you see the difference where there's more WWE fans there now than there were like two or three years ago, or I guess two to four years ago since three years ago, they were not running shows anywhere because it was the peak of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, the point is I think they're drawing, they have more WWE fans than they used to have as as fans of AEW. And even though some of those people will pay to go to AEW too, for more, most of them, WWE is going to be their priority. I mean, they're going to, if they're going to pay to go, they have a, a finite amount of money to spend on a wrestling ticket and they're going to spend it on WWE. That's which is their thing. They're the the primary fan of. So I think that's the biggest factor. I think as AEW has been more and more like WWE this year, they're drawing more WWE fans. And for those people, AEW will always be secondary, especially right now when WWE is pretty hot. So that's why I think they're having such difficulty drawing fans to the buildings. If I would tell them to be less like WWE and go back to being, you know, more more about the in-ring wrestling. I mean, they still have great in-ring wrestling, but like less sports entertainment crap and, you know, really like um, go back to what made AEW unique. Uh, and maybe you'll get some of those fans back who, um, you know, probably aren't watching any wrestling right now. But clearly they think the way to go is you know, attracting more of the WWE fans and you can see it in their, you know, in their on-screen product. You can see it in who they've hired this year. And I think, you know, we'll have to see if that works for them long-term. I, it, it's working fine for TV ratings. It's not working very well for live attendance. That is for sure. So let's go in a different direction here because I think all those points you made are, are really intriguing. And I think there's a lot of merit there. What's your take on, how AEW has structured their ticket sales. And it's something we've had a lot of discussions about. They have spiked ticket sales early on. And then the last week or so, they're offering discounts, including a buy one, get one free promotion for Grand Slam this upcoming Wednesday, which we will preview here in a little bit. Do you think that's having an adverse effect on ticket sales right now because they're having that spike, but we really aren't seeing anything on the back end as far as getting a huge spike in like the last week where you would think you might because there's that shrunken tickets, is that high initial price having people back off a little bit? Yeah. I don't know what to make of their tickets. I mean, I've, so 
I've seen people say the actual get in the door price for AEW shows really has not gone up that much. Like people, it's kind of become a talking point that the ticket prices are up, but they're really up for the premium seats. It like the actual get in the door price for most AEW events, as far as I can tell, really isn't up that much. It was for Grand Slam though, and I think Grand Slam may have been the exception. It really did hurt the ticket sales. Um, but yeah, I don't, you know, it, it it's makes. I don't think it's a good idea to to condition your fan base um, to think to know that the initial price is going to be way higher than the final price when they get desperate and like move tickets at the last minute with this, you know, buy one, get one stuff. I mean, Joe on the flagship last week was talking about how his friend was able to find a ticket to grand slam on one of these seat filler sites that like Broadway shows use when they have unused tickets for only, he found a ticket for only $5. I mean, that is insane. So, you know, it, it makes me, you know, somebody who bought my grand slam ticket, you know, months and months ago, I bought my ticket probably like May or something and paid full price, paid like a hundred something dollars. You know, it makes me feel like an idiot, honestly. I mean, I come on here and, and, you know, see if they drop at the last minute again, which has been the pattern for months now. Um, and I think that's a very bad thing to teach your fan base. You do not want to be teaching your fan base that if they don't buy a ticket when the seats go on sale, they could just wait it out and buy a ticket for much less. I mean, that's a, that's devaluing your live tick, your own tickets. Um, first of all, yeah, you're just devaluing the value of your ticket. And second of all, you know, what you're talking about where they don't get a huge spike at the last minute with these, uh, with the drop prices. I mean, they do get a spike. I mean, there was like one show recently where I think the, the ticket sales, like, like dropping the prices the last second drove the tickets from like 2,500 to like 3,300, which you know, 3,300 looks a lot better on paper. So I get why they do it. But like when you, when you uh, teach people to wait into the last second to buy your tickets, because the price might be really low, you run the risk that they just fucking forget. Right. Like the on sale date is a big thing. And you know, you get people to buy on the on sale date, but if you've taught people not to buy on the on sale date and wait until the last minute, I mean, someone might might literally have thought of um you know someone might have thought of uh i like i i want to go to the show but they might just fucking forget in the last week to buy their ticket when it's cheap and then they don't go so i think you really run the risk of that happening where um you know you just lose these people because you know they just forget to buy their ticket so yeah i don't, I don't so i think that could be part of why the the last minute spikes aren't often super high, even when they do these uh, buy one, get one and, you know, really cheap and even comp ticket deals. So, yeah, I don't know. I just think it's a, it's a very bad idea. I mean, again, to compare it to what else I know, which is new Japan, you know, new Japan will set a ticket price and that is the ticket price. They do not lower the price. They do not give comp tickets. They don't do buy one, get one free. If, if the show doesn't fucking sell, which, you know, not, not all their shows sell that well right now. They, that's it. They just, they just deal with it. They just have a smaller, uh, a smaller crowd, but they're keeping their ticket at a premium price. And in fact, they've been able to sell some tickets at really premium prices, uh, you know, this year, but like really jacking up, you know, that's a company that's really jacked up their ticket prices, especially their premium seats as well, but they're not undermining it by, you know, dropping the ticket prices at the last second to, you know, get an extra 800 people in there. I just think it's a very poor, 
you know, it's a very poor thing to teach your fan base long term. So I don't I don't think that's a good idea at all. But that seems to be what they do. So I would agree with you. And it's not just the teaching your fan base that you can just buy a cheaper ticket later on. But it's also if you have the price too high, then it, you're you're telling them, hey, you can just buy it later. Then that's a big part of it. But it's not just about waiting to save money. It's now you bought your Grand Slam ticket in March. You now have six months to make plans for that day. And especially when you talk about collision, Saturdays are not just a night for fighting. They're a night for a lot of other things. It's date night. There's concerts. There's going to the club. There's all these different things that you can do on a Saturday. And now you're telling your audience, hey, we still want you to come to our show and we're going to give you cheaper tickets later on. But now you just have two months to figure out what else you can do in that time. And then not necessarily forget about it. Just be like, oh, I can't do it now because I've already made other plans. And it's there's so many ways where this is just a dangerous ask. And you can look at, okay, let's say full gear. You have a, a 14,000 seat uh, venue and you're at like 8,000. Maybe a couple days before you'd be like, hey, if you want to come, we'll give you some deals on tickets so you can get extra people in the building. They did something similar for double or nothing so they could get, excuse me, over that 10,000 mark. But every single show is, as you mentioned, is a dangerous proposition for so many reasons. And it's, are you going to be able to rehab from something like that? Unless if you get super hot, that's going to fix everything because then you can pretty much do whatever you want. And I was doing the NFL intelligentsia with Joe and he was talking about um, taking his family to the Houston Astros game. And like 10 years ago, you could get tickets for 20, 30 bucks and you can do that for the twins here in town. Now that they're really, really good. He said it cost him 500 bucks just to get his family a four in the door. And if you're hot, it fixes absolutely everything. But until then this, this is a real dangerous game they're playing. And it, it makes me wonder if they should go back to kind of being, for lack of a better term, a regional touring promotion instead of doing this whole national thing where you're only getting 2,500 people in Kansas or Missouri when you could probably be be drawing a better house for less travel costs if you stay in one section of the country. Yeah, their their touring schedule has always been really weird to me too. But uh, like it seems like some places they go a lot and some places they don't go very often at all so i don't know that, that could be a factor too is that they're just burning out these markets i mean they were just the grand slam tickets like, like i just talked about that newark collision they were just here like two months ago you know i think the collision was either june or july i don't remember which but or it would have been july right because didn't collision start in june yeah yeah so i think it was july i mean like again you're talking like you know two months they were here two months ago so i mean if you really want to see aw but you know um you and know, the day maybe, before maybe that, you, they had the ROH pay per view in Trenton. So that's they, true. I was I was there too. I should know that. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a very interesting dilemma that Tony Khan is kind of. It, it, well, Trenton Trenton actually isn't really the New York market. No, I think like Trenton's so far south in Jersey. Okay. But, yeah, I mean, I went to both, but I'm sure there were some other people who did. But it's pretty. Um, it's closer to the Philly market, actually. But anyway. Okay. Um, so. It's it's really interesting because Tony Khan keeps putting himself into corners like this where he doesn't have to, but he continues to do so. And 
but we talk about it a lot on the show with his booking where, oh, you put yourself into this bad situation. It's your own fault because you you keep putting yourself in these situations. And it, I fear that this could end up being, and this is um, some decent hyperbole, but I really wonder if this is going to end up being the downfall of the company if something happens where things just go absolute kablooey within the next 10-ish years where he just keeps painting himself into these corners and he doesn't know how to get out of them because he put himself in them to begin with. And I'm there's some concern on my end that it could be um, a big factor in this company not being able to take a rise that it really should. Yeah, I don't I'm not really worried about them like going out of business, but um I they they have less of a window to you know really be a, a stronger number two that I feel like than they did even a year ago. Like they they feel much more like TNA-esque than they did even a year ago. But who knows? Maybe they'll catch fire again and uh well, you know, they'll be drawing much better numbers. But I don't know. Right now, I did like the the thing that people say is hot, which is the MJF Cole storyline. Um, like to me, it makes sense that that's not a great arena draw, because you know, obviously there are people who love that storyline. I mean, you can hear it with the people who do buy, who do mm-hmm. still show up. You can see it in the quarter hours, but like to me, it makes intuitive sense that it wouldn't be a big arena draw, because. You know, let's say you are a huge fan of MJF and Adam Cole and you love the pre-tapes. A pre-tape is really the same fucking thing, whether you're sitting in the arena watching it on on the screen or sitting at a home watching on your TV. So, like, that's not an arena draw in the same way that, you know, AEW having great matches is an arena draw or AEW having, a, you know, a, not not even just great matches, but, like, the world title feeling like a big deal. Like you have to be there to see the world champion defended or uh, whatever else. I mean, they have both marginalized their own world title in this storyline and made it feel less important than ever. And, you know, they've, they've through focusing on a storyline that I really feel like is equally interesting or like, if you love it, it's equally easy to love it from the confines of your own home as it is in the arena because you're what you love about it is you know the pre-tapes the wacky comedy the the skits and that just is not a big arena draw i mean that to me there's a lot of examples of that in wrestling history of stuff where you know people will watch it on tv and enjoy it on tv but it won't necessarily translate to being a big arena draw and to me the mjf cole storyline you know fits in perfectly in, in that uh you know in that pantheon and that, that was part of the discussion that we had in the the office Slack the other day because I, I brought it up and I, I don't think I got a super clear answer, but you laid it out very well, John, is MJF as champion, I feel, is really hard to discern as a certifiable draw for kind of the same reasons you laid out. He doesn't wrestle. And it, you look at some other champions, like Jericho on the show every week at least – and an in-ring segment. Moxley was wrestling almost every week, even in tag matches. Omega was always around the show, even though he was doing a million other things with his belt collector gimmick. Hangman Page was uh, wrestling maybe a little bit less. Punk, well, he didn't really have a chance to wrestle because he got hurt twice. 
And then Moxley was wrestling with that interim title, and now you have MJF. But MJF yeah. isn't wrestling in tag like tag matches to advance storylines. Then he really didn't start wrestling with any form of consistency until this Adam Cole stuff really hit its apex a few weeks ago, where they won the tag titles and then they wrestled twice in Wembley. But how much of that is do you need to consider with some of these uh, in ring numbers? Because if if you do love MJF, I'm not spending a hundred bucks on a ticket to go watch a pre tape. That to me that that's not a certifiable live event draw. I want to see the best wrestlers in the ring. I went to the two shows that they've had in Minneapolis so far. It was Full Gear 2021 where Paige won the title. And then it was Quake at the Lake 2022 where you had Moxley versus Lionheart uh, for the title. And then Punk Return, which also had the worst rampage of all time, which is really funny considering how great the Dynamite was. But to me, there was certifiable draws, top stars that I knew were going to be in the ring. They were going to be wrestling. If I love MJF, why should I buy a ticket unless I know for a certifiable fact he's going to be wrestling? Because I may not even get to see him in the ring. That's to me, that's the that's a really key cog in how some of this business has gone. Because and with the soft brand split, I feel like that had a big influence in this ticket buying because you didn't know who was going to be on what shows. There was all this drama surrounding CM Punk, and maybe that's just me being too online and having my head ingrained in some of this and you're, you know, the mythical uh, straw man casual fan doesn't follow this kind of stuff regularly. But I feel like all of these things are playing into these poor ticket sales. And if I knew MJF was going to be at the very minimum in the ring doing something, I could justify buying a ticket to go see him. Otherwise, you said it best. It's devaluing your world championship. Yeah, I mean, and you, I'm, I was just looking up some numbers out of curiosity of like, uh, you know, the um, the the attendance for some of these other title reigns. Like the Kenny Omega reign was mostly during COVID, so you know there there wasn't a lot of attendance numbers there. But like his two big numbers towards the end of the reign, um, you know, he did ten thousand one twenty six uh, for All Out twenty twenty one, where it was him and Christian. And that show sold out in a day. I mean, literally now, in a day. How much of that can like? And I don't mean to be um, well, disrespectful one, to Omega, but how much can you actually credit Kenny Omega for that that number because of CM Punk? Yeah, well, that's true too. And then you have Full Gear, which was uh, the Target Center, um, you know, in November, which did they had the Omega Page one that was ten thousand four forty two. Um, which was not a sellout. The capacity was like twelve thousand forty-five, but yeah, I mean, those are those are still numbers they would kind of kill for today. I mean, compared to some of the uh, some of the, I mean, the, neither of the pay-per-views that are on sale right now are doing close to that. I mean, they're the Wrestle Dream last time I checked was at like four thousand, and all out. I mean, uh, Full Gear in LA was at about uh, sixty-five hundred. So th- actually, Full Gear could get to like the ten thousand range by the end since. You still have a while for that one. Still got a couple months, but Wrestle Dream probably won't get close. Um, and yeah, like you're saying, there's other factors too. There's CM Punk, obviously, especially for All Out, and there's um, although I don't know, what, did he return before they put the tickets on sale? Um, I don't, I don't know if they, he did or not. I can't remember what day the tickets went on yeah. sale, but they they announced the last dance and the what second the first dance. Sorry, the first dance. The second yeah. they announced that, everybody knew. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I just can't remember if that was before or after All Out tickets went on sale. But either All way. Out, All Out was the first pay-per-view right, the first outside match. of Jacksonville with fans because they did uh, Double or Nothing in the amphitheater. Right. So I, was, so I was going to mention that as the other factor is, um, you know, the shows are probably hot coming out of COVID because people are just desperate to go to things. I mean, mm-hmm. the entire the entire travel sector and everything, and like you know, sports attempts and stuff. They were all, everything was very hot um, coming out of COVID because of um, you know people basically feeling both having a lot of money that they weren't spending and also feeling very like cooped up and like you know they they had a term for it in the travel industry, revenge travel. So you know, there was probably a lot of that too, revenge attendance. But mm-hmm. so I don't I don't want to discount that entirely. But the fact is. You're looking at pay-per-views during Kenny's reign that MJF's reign can't really touch, and or certainly can't touch right now. And um, you know they did not have to like mark tickets down at the last second to get people in the building like they did at Double or Nothing. Um, you know this year, um, you know it's just a, it, it's a very it, the company was much hotter during Kenny's reign than it was during MJF's. Like that is, I don't really think that's disputable. Besides, obviously, the uh, the all-in number in Britain, which was, you know, whether it was 72,000 or 81,000 was very high. But, but yeah, I mean, I kind of lost, lost track of my point here. Besides to say that MJF, um, I don't know, he's, he's certainly not drawing as champion. And I've seen people give, um, you know, I've seen people give him a lot of the blame for AEW drawing, drawing under him as champion lately. Uh, especially the week to week TV, but I've seen people, other people try to say, you know, it's not quite his fault. You know, there are other, fa- and I do believe there are other factors. I mean, I talked a lot about the, you know, the f- earlier about how they're, they're more and more WWE like, and, you know, I do think that's a factor in how they're, they're not drawing as you have these WWE fans that are prioritizing WWE. Um, but on the other hand, who is the guy who, by all accounts, is pushing the WWE, um, the WWEification of AEW at the top of the cardboard? And anybody, it's MJF. I mean, he has a lot of mm-hmm. control over his own booking, and you know, by all by all accounts. So you know, if it's if that's one of the big factors in uh, in AEW not drawing so well lately, which I think it is that's still MJF. I mean, that's still something he should get a great deal to blame for. So I don't know. It's a complicated question and I'm not, I don't think like MJF is, uh, you know, he's, I don't think MJF is necessarily like the, um, you know, like this big anchor totally dragging AW down. I mean, he still gets great reactions in the building, obviously, but it's clear. He's not a draw. Attendance wise, at minimum, he's not a positive influence on AEW's attendance because otherwise they would be drawing better with him as champion. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you 100 there. I, I, it's very interesting to see some of these ticket numbers with MJF, and it's it's not great. I'm trying to look up to see as we're talking um, what the ticket sales are currently for grand slam. And it doesn't look like Russell Tix has posted an update in the past, um, past week or so, but the last their, are, you, are you looking, are you looking at their Patreon? Let me bring it up. I have their Patreon. 
Oh, I do not have their Patreon. I was just yeah. looking at the, the Twitter page. The last number yeah. I had seen was like 6,800, I think. Yeah, something like that, which is, you know. About half good. of what last year was. Yeah. Let me see if I can bring it up. Hold on. Because last year, I think, was 13-3, and they sold out year one because it was a, a gimp it was a really cool gimmick Ooh. and okay so the last update i have on the grant on the patreon is 6284 Ooh, that was two days ago yeah so and they set it up for 12,129 so they still have 5845 available so uh and this is and now the upper decks upper deck is now available with a buy one get one free offer um but yeah, so if you look at like, because he can, he he has these updates, um, and yeah, just I mean they've they've been at this number for a long time. I mean around this they they really have been, they've been at like around fifty. Looks like they were at fifty three hundred uh, as of August twenty fourth. So you're talking they moved like a thousand seats or less than a thousand seats in you know two weeks, which is not very good given a. Uh, the show is supposed to be one of their bigger shows of the year. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, last year did like, I think what did like 12,000, right? Wasn't that the final number? It was uh, just over 13. Okay. And uh, I mean, you can, unless you're putting on a tremendous card, once people have seen the gimmick, it, the gimmick itself wears thin. So, and th- and before we really get into Grand Slam, I want to talk about Tony Khan's booking strategy because I think this is hindering some of those ticket sales because all the focus was on All In. They peppered in a tiny bit of All Out before doing basically a one-week build for All Out. And then two and a half weeks later, they have Grand Slam. Now, for the first year, it didn't matter because the first wrestling show at Arthur Ashe Stadium, really cool atmosphere, cool aesthetic, and you get the the gimmick of it being the first time ever. Second year, you're going to have some diminishing returns unless the product is either super hot or you give it and deliver a tremendous card. Well, right now, you're basically on week two of a two-and-a-half-week build, and the main event for that show just got announced yesterday with MJF and Samoa Joe. Are we looking at some of these diminishing returns, especially for these bigger shows, due to the fact that Tony Khan just will not book far enough ahead? Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know if it's his problem they won't book far enough ahead. It's also just why are there so many big shows like so quickly like this? You know, like mm-hmm. we have All In, All Out, Grand Slam, and Wrestle Dream like within what, like a month and a half of each other? I mean, that's a lot of big shows mm-hmm. for such a short amount of time. So. Uh, maybe it makes sense for them anyway because of the, you know, they did do plenty of pay-per-view buys between all in and all out. So they're making plenty of money, but I don't know. It's just, it's a very, like, I think, I feel like you you risk burning out your audience, putting this many big shows back to back to back to back to back like this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at some point people are going to have to pick and choose. And I think you do see some of that in the attendance already. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if you see that the Russell dream, Pay-per-view buy rate because I, you know, it'll be a, you know, it'll be interesting to see what what pay-per-view buy rate they do for a brand new pay-per-view. I mean, mm. All Out did a great number. All things considered, a week after All In, but All Out also has a lot of cachet with the audience. You know, that's a big show every year. Yeah. So I'll be interested to see what what a brand new show that has no cachet 
uh, coming so soon after all these other big shows does, but I guess we'll have to say. Yeah. I, but, and we already have somewhat of a um, understanding of why all in and all out were next to each other like that. Uh, just as all out is on a Labor Day weekend, where which is basically a holiday weekend. Apparently they have something similar in the UK the week prior. So it's, it's some sort of like Labor Day-ish weekend for them. So you have a Sunday show, but then you don't have to worry about returning to work on Monday. So Khan is apparently trying to leverage the same thing with all of us having gone to so many of these all-out shows and get the VOW suite for the last three years. <laughs> They're, he's apparently trying to do the same thing in the UK, which completely understand. But then when you have Grand Slam, maybe you move Grand Slam, I don't know, mid-July? So I don't then, know what well so I, so I don't know what the calendar is like in that building. I I don't think mid July would be possible because I assume they're probably already getting ready for the for the U, US Open at that point. But mm-hmm. I would assume later in the year would be possible. Like maybe you could put it in December or something. But I guess, I guess that would overlap with winter is coming. Is it in, it is an open air stadium or do, does it have a roof? Um it's sort of yeah, it has a roof, but like there's like a gap. I don't so like it's kind of open air, but also it has a roof. I don't know how to describe it, but okay. Um, so it, that sounds like what the old Texas Stadium was for the Dallas Cowboys, where it was like enclosed, but then there was like that that rectangle cut out of the top where it, yeah, it, yeah, you'll get weather. Yeah, okay. I, I don't. It, it would still be. I think it would still get cold. Might be the problem. Like you wouldn't really get rained on or snowed on, but I, it's not. I don't think it's fully enclosed. And I could be remembering this wrong, even though I've been there twice. But I think that's I think that's how it is. But yeah, the, it, I'm very intrigued to see one if Wrestle Dream becomes a yearly pay per view because this is uh, oddly enough AEW doing a one year uh, like tribute show a year after Antonio Noki's death. That uh, that alone is unique in itself, but it, it fits the motif of how tony khan likes to honor legends where he doesn't matter uh, how if they were at all um connected to aew and obviously there's the aw new japan connection that however strong that may be but to do an entire pay-per-view for him is interesting and i'm very curious if this is going to be a one-off or a continuous thing but we assume that there's going to be 12 pay-per-views a year at some point just because there's so much money to be made and they basically have 12 big shows anyway. So you might as well try and get some pay-per-view dollars off of it. But it, how they've structured this is just so odd and we've kind of laid it all out. I'm, I, I don't know how you can keep doing this. Yeah, it's going to be, it's, it's, it's weird. So I guess we'll see how it goes. I mean, so far I think it's definitely having an effect on attendance. So I guess we'll have to see, even if, you know, even if like, Obviously, the same people who go to Russell Grand Slam may not necessarily go to all these other shows in other places. But like, if the show feels less important because it's coming so quickly after All Out uh, and All In, which would you know All In and All Out together, and then so quickly before you know Wrestle Dream, that's still going to have an effect on attendance because people are just not going to be as likely to go if the show doesn't feel as important. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll see. I mean, the, the, the Wrestle Grand Slam cards we're going to get into is pretty great. So I'm definitely happy I'm going. I just wish I had uh I wish I had waited at the last second and got a cheaper ticket like mm-hmm. all these other people did. But anyway. Well, 
Well, let's jump into the card, John, because it is really good. And so far, we have six official matches. Uh, and we'll let's start here. Let's start at the top. MJF is defending the AEW World Championship against Samoa Joe, where on this past Dynamite, not only did he say he'd choke out Joe, and he guaranteed that he'd choke out Joe, but then he gave a modernized rendition of the Steiner Math promo, which was absolutely phenomenal. It it was funny. It was funny. I, like at least my whole thing with MJF now is he does so much bad comedy that at least this was good comedy. I actually mm-hmm. did laugh. I mean, I I still wish he was a little more serious as the world champion. I think he's like I said earlier. I think his reign has devalued this title. But um, if he has to do comedy in every segment, at least this was funny. I'm yeah, like, and I'd like kangaroo kick and all sorts of stupid oh, bullshit. Gosh, the the kangaroo kick and Outback Steakhouse, I can all hit the bricks. But yeah. Samoa Joe, and I said this in the Slack a, a couple weeks ago, Samoa Joe might be the perfect professional wrestler. And if if he was somehow five to ten years younger physically, because I don't think he's washed, but he also just can't do everything he used to be able to do. It, I don't know. I still, still put the title on him right now. I would too, and that's about what, that's <laughs> what I was going to say. I don't know how you book this match because just like the bloodline, and we've heard that AEW is calling this their bloodline, the MJF Adam Cole stuff. You don't need the title for it. Samoa Joe, like you belt up Samoa Joe, and all of a sudden you have this ass kicker who would like I don't know if he would necessarily elevate the title, but it would be viewed in a completely different light. And I think that could be really good for this company. You could still do the MJF Adam Cole stuff, um, obviously because you still they still have the Ring of Honor tag team titles, and then Joe could just go out there and beat the living shit out of people, and then maybe you give like the next reign, whoever that may be, maybe it's a guy like Ricky Starks or somebody you can elevate by dethroning the monster up top. Either way, I think this match has a potential to be really, really good. If they allow it to be, do you think he's going to win? I don't think Joe's going to win. I don't think so, but I would do it. I would do it, but I don't think he's going to win. I think he has like a 5% chance or something. I'd be pretty shocked. The one Um, thing that's intriguing to me here, John is that this storyline has been booked out through December, but we don't necessarily know that MJF's going to be the champion the whole way. So I at least have a shadow of doubt in my head, but every time Joe's made like a big challenge in AEW, he's lost. And well, except when he won the TNT title, I guess. Oh yeah. I, I, I'll be honest. I completely forgot about that (laughs) title feud with Wardlow. The the missing the missing man Wardlow yeah, oh. um, but yeah the MGF to Joe thing I mean my only complaint with how they set this up is the tournament itself was yet another example of like why this okay you have Tony Khan who clearly loves tournaments mm-hmm. but he seems to have no idea what makes tournaments and other promotions so great because he puts together these tournaments like okay. When you see the bracket for that, for this tournament, that was the the world title eliminator, and you see the wrestlers in this fucking tournament, it's like they it, they may have it, it's like every other AEW big tournament where they take an obvious winner, an obvious finalist. You know, Joe and Strong, they were both obvious. They're both push guys. Although Strong really has had no fucking claim to this at all in in kayfabe, 
because all he's done basically is have a neck injury and whine about it for months. But you have the obvious winner and obvious uh, finalist, a token other like top guy slash upper mid Carter and Darby Allen, and another one like probably in Penta, and then fucking complete scrubs in there like Jeff Hardy, Jay Lethal, uh, you know, even Nick Wayne, who hasn't really done anything since he came in yet. Um, and there's like one guy I'm forgetting who was the other guy in this tournament. <laughs> I think I named everybody but one, but I don't know. Oh, and Trent, who like really hasn't done much of anything either. And like, why are these the eight biggest contenders for the AW world title? It doesn't really make any sense. And they always run tournaments like this, whether it's the Owen, whether it's other tournaments, it's never like the eight greatest wrestlers in the company, or even like a bigger field where you have some scrubs, but also, you know, a more main event slash upper mid card talent, like a 16 man or even 32 man tournament. It's always just like, if this was real, you can never understand how the AEW board of directors or whatever the fuck it is, pick these eight people. It makes no sense why some of these people would get a, get to be in a tournament for an AEW world title shot. But fucking Konosuke Takashita, who just beat Kenny Omega, a former world champion and a legend in your company. Takashita beats Kenny Omega at all out, beats him twice, actually. Pins him twice in a week at all in and all out and can't apparently is not one of the eight greatest contenders for the AW world title. It makes no sense. And when you bring this up in a place like, you know, the voice of the wrestling channel, the discord, people will always reply. Well, it's because uh, Tony Khan doesn't want, you know, so many top guys doing jobs. I'm like, yes, I know that's the out of character reason. That's the shoot reason why he books these tournaments that, that way. But it still makes no fucking sense in canon. And it mm-hmm. results in these tournaments that should feel like a much bigger deal, but don't because he refuses to put top guys in these tournaments and refuses to, you know, let them face each other or do jobs or whatever. And as a result, these tournaments end up feeling like a big waste of time or a big, you know, time killer when they should be big deals. I mean, for a guy who loves supposedly loves tournaments, all he has to do is look at New Japan, even not even just the G1, but the New Japan Cup. That's a single elimination tournament. It's not like you know New Japan leaves out uh, most of their main eventers because they don't want them to do any jobs. Pretty much the entire roster, besides the world champion and maybe his challenger, is at the New Japan Cup, and they just get rid of guys where they're able to get rid of guys, and they you know they have upsets. They have Toriano might roll somebody up or, um, you know, they, they avoid necessarily doing big matches that they, they don't want to do, but they still have everybody in the tournament, you know, or even and they, they still to- have somebody big lose almost every single year in the first round. Yeah. And even to compare it to um, American wrestling, I mean, back in the day when the King of the Ring was at its peak, there was more than like two people who you could call you know, a top, an upper mid Carter slash top, you know, rising star. I mean, there were tournaments where Shawn Michaels got eliminated in the first round or second round. There were tournaments where the Undertaker got eliminated early. Uh, you know, the Rock would go to the finals and lose. I mean, there were good, you know, uh, there was that 2000 year where like, you know, Angle and Benoit and Jericho and, you know, all these guys were all in it. And again, they have upsets. And, but they have bored them like just an obvious winner and an obvious finalist in it. And mm-hmm. 
you know, the the Owen Hart tournament, I don't I, I can't even tell what the fuck the point of that is supposed to be when the winner doesn't really get anything besides a photo op of Martha Hart and the tournament itself, you know, just has such a small eight person field and like, you know, no qualifier matches, just here's eight people chosen at random. And you know, again, we saw it in the Owen. We saw it in this world title eliminator. I'm sure there's going to be more tournaments. They usually have one for full gear. And like, until they start putting either a bigger field or just an eight person field that has more than a few people who, you know, actually feel important, these tournaments are never going to mean anything because they fill it up with so many fucking scrubs that have no business being in it and don't make any sense from a kayfabe perspective. I mean, Takeshi not being in this tournament, especially like this year, especially was a complete joke. And it's because, oh, we don't want him challenging the world title, but we don't want him doing a job. I'm like, they get let him get counted out or something. I don't know. I'm like, it's just so, like, do what you have to do. But the, these tournaments make no sense the way you're doing them now. So that would be my one big complaint about the build of this title match. And I definitely, I just wanted to get off that rant about AEW's tournaments because I think they're so fucking stupid. I completely agree with you. I will counter with one example they have done one tournament extremely well and that was the tournament right after brawl out where everybody in the tournament was a former aew world champion yeah that's a good that's that that, that's kind of a weird one because of mm -hmm. obviously that they had to do something big i guess because of punk you know having the title but let me rephrase that it was a former world champion, and then they had Sammy Guevara as the longest reigning TNT champion because Brian Danielson was in the tournament, but he's never held the AEW world title, but obviously he has in WWE. That was well-constructed, but I'm with you. Like The Owen Hart tournament felt really cool at first. Then Adam Cole and Dr. Britt Baker carried around the titles for two weeks. Nothing. And I'm like, okay, that was weird. Why in the world would you build up this tournament to honor someone like Owen Hart, give these prizes to two of your biggest stars and then do absolutely nothing with it. No follow-up, no using that to propel into another feud, nothing. And then this year, I had a little more hope. I'm like, okay, you know, they're doing it in Canada pretty much exclusively. That's cool because Owen Hart is Canadian. And it, you have obviously uh, Stu Hart with... Uh, Stampede Wrestling in Calgary and the famous dungeon. It's a cool way to continue to build this tournament. They do nothing with it afterwards. Like, what are we doing here? Like, it, we're not using tournaments to really build anyone up. And he loves doing battle royals for title shots and ladder matches for title shots. But then we're using tournaments to not do anything? And at least when you look at other companies, like that, there isn't anything that's perfect out there. But as you mentioned, New Japan, like in the New Japan Cup, has a purpose, has a winner. They get a title shot at the next big show. G1 has a purpose. It's to determine who is the best. They get a title shot now at Wrestle Kingdom. That's only been around for around a, a decade or so. But even so, the winner of the G1 was like, yeah, the winner was, of the G1 used to, winner of the G1 almost always got a title shot after, but it wasn't, it didn't used to automatically be the January 4th show. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like they, like when Nakamura won it in 2011, he got a title shot like a month later, mm -hmm. for example. 2012, I think, was the start of the, the automatic title shot at Wrestle Kingdom. 
Yeah, and there's a purpose. There's a an end game to these tournaments. And like even Pro Wrestling Noah, and we rip on Pro Wrestling Noah because of how bad their booking is. The N1 has a winner. They get a title shot. There is cohesiveness. There is a purpose. The Owen Hart Memorial Tournament feels soulless almost because they don't, like from a canon standpoint, why does it matter if you win the Owen Hart Tournament? Why it, it does, does the tournament... I mean, what, what do they do for, for Ricky Starks? Like absolutely nothing. He got a strap match against Brian Danielson for something completely out of out of like the notion of the tournament. The only the only point of it was to have him feud with CM Punk, and that you could have done that completely without the tournament. And it didn't really the winning the tournament did nothing for Ricky Starks. It only was a cog to continue a feud. And to me, that that doesn't say anything about it. Doesn't build prestige. It doesn't build any kind of growth within the tournament. And it doesn't tell me as a viewer that I should give a rat's ass about it, which is really unfortunate because the the, con- the conceptual idea of it is really, really cool. And to honor one of the best professional wrestlers that w- has ever graced North American soil, outside of that, canon-wise, it's a bunch of crap. And yeah. th- it's one of the things that Tony Khan, and he continuously puts himself into these corners when he doesn't have to. Make it mean something. Like it's just putting Owen Hart's name on it isn't enough to make it something. And you have to be able to have the follow up to do that. And it, I've mentioned it on this show before, John. I don't know if you've uh, you've heard it or remember it. I, I really think Tony Khan has overextended himself, and that's why some of this stuff is has been missing. And one of the reasons why Will Washington, I believe, was hired because there's just not enough cohesiveness when there really should be. Yeah, no, for sure. So, but yeah, I just wanted to make that point about the tournament while we got there. The actual match, MJF and Joe, I'm excited for it. I'm excited to see it. Um, I just don't, I don't really think Joe has much of a chance, but I'd love to be wrong. If Joe wins that title, I will be very happy (laughs) to have seen, to have seen that in person, especially someone who's been watching Joe's career, Mm -hmm. dating all the way back to his original Ring of Honor title run. So, do you think Tony Khan is the type of booker where he sees somebody like Samoa Joe and like, he had Chris Jericho hold the ROH title because he wanted Jericho to be in the ROH title lineage? Is Samoa Joe the type of wrestler that Tony Khan would want to have in the AEW world title lineage just to say mm-hmm. that they did it? I guess it wouldn't stun me, right? Especially if he loses it right back to MJF at Wrestle Dream or something. Um so I could see that. Maybe 5% is too low in that case. Um, but yeah, I don't. it's possible. It's possible. It is possible. And it, this next match, John, is very interesting for a lot of different reasons. Soraya defends her title against Tony Storm. And the idea of this match makes a lot of sense. It's great on paper. You have uh, some infighting within the outcast, and it feels like Tony Storm is on her way out of the group. But it, the like, big questions around this match are not who's necessarily going to win. Is is this match going to be a disaster? Yeah. I mean, Soraya has been pretty fucking horrible since she came back. Um, you know, Tony Storm is good. I, she might be able to drag something decent out of her. It won't shock me if they have like a three-star match or something 
um, because Tony Storm is a great wrestler and can drag that out of her. Um, but they're going to be fighting the crowd apathy slash uh, unofficial intermission uh, status that like all AW women's matches seem to fight on big shows now. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you look at this card. I mean, obviously, you have MJF Joe, Jericho Sammy, Claudio Eddie, Moxie Phoenix, and then this. I mean, this is going to be the match that's going to be the chicken finger bathroom break match for the crowd. I mean, that's just how, that's, you know, I'm not trying to do a sexism here. I'm just saying that, they get, you know, it's uh, it's yeah. how the AW fans have treated the women's division pretty much all year. Um, you know, and that's it's it's a learned behavior i mean i don't want to really get into the whole women's division argument right now but it's it's a, it's something that would, they've been taught by the promotion you know it's not like mm-hmm. uh I, I don't buy the idea that aw fans are like naturally more sexist than impact wrestling fans or wwe fans or even new japan us fans because you know the, that women's division has been going very well um yeah. but the women's you know, division had a far- very rocky start because of what the roster looked like, especially during the pandemic and right out of it, it was it was pretty weak. And I even wrote a piece on it. You can't actually talk about or like book a really good women's division without a really good women's division. And it, it's almost better to not book them much at all to protect them, and then eventually start to really ramp it back up. And it's. I feel like the damage, unfortunately, has just been done. And now that you have some really talented wrestlers, it's it might be too late until like maybe you get Hater back and you really put a lot of attention and focus on it. Yeah, I mean, there's that's such I get it, but like on the other hand, you're fucking Athena who like had a four and a half star match in the Ring of Honor Death for Dishonor main event with Willow, and you can't, you know, she can't get on AEW TV to save her life. So I mean, there's wrestlers there they could focus on if they really wanted to. But instead, we have, you know, Soraya, Soraya, whatever the fuck her name is, is champion. We have uh, Sky Blue on TV every week. I mean, you know, just they they choose to focus on crappy wrestlers. I mean, that's a choice they make. They have wrestlers they can focus on that are not crappy. And obviously, Tony is great. And, you know, you have other wrestlers who are good to great who can't get on TV. And, you know, so I, I don't buy this idea they have to wait for Jamie Hayter because I see that a lot. I think they could have a good division right now if they really wanted to. Never mind the fact that there's people, you know, they could go out and get who are either available or probably will be available soon um, to make this division better. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, at some point they're probably going to get Mercedes Monet and that will at least as a part-timer. And I'm sure that will help. And that will bring up the, um, you know, the, the general perception of the division and, make it feel more important, which, you know, it's half the battle where you have, you know, you hopefully have crowds that are willing to stay in their seats a little more instead of doing the chicken finger run. So, you know, that will help a lot, but at some point they have to stop pushing crappy wrestlers. Like, I don't know what to say. You yeah. have to get the fucking shitty wrestlers off the fucking TV screen every week and get wrestlers who actually know what they're doing in there more often. I mean, that's just the bottom line. Do you think this is the spot for Mercedes Monet to debut? Soraya I mean, was the debut last year. It's possible. I mean, I don't. I don't know what her timeline is with that walking boot. I mean, she was still wearing it all at it all in, so it might still be a few more months away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we don't necessarily know how severe the injury was because 
breaks in a foot can take six weeks. They can take a lot, lot longer. Let's let's move on. We have a few more matches to get to. And the next one, the build has been very weird for this, but it's it's been a long time coming with Chris Jer- Jericho versus Sammy Guevara. And I like the idea behind it where the like Sammy Guevara is kind of like the protege to Chris Jericho and he's got to beat him to really get him in the rearview mirror. But Sammy Guevara is not a baby face and we keep trying to make him a baby face. And I don't get it because I'm, I'm sitting watching the segment last night with my wife who does not like professional wrestling. And I, I look yeah. at her and uh, I ask her, what do you think of, <laughs> I asked Caitlin, what do you think of this guy? And I'm like, do you think he's a good guy, bad guy? And she's like, no, I don't like him at all. I'm like, because he's he he just has a very punchable face. She's like, oh, absolutely. Like, that's just Sammy Guevara. And he, watching the AEW, I, think, I don't remember what it was called, but the backstage gimmick, um, he came across as a, as a decent guy, a nice guy. That doesn't necessarily work on screen. And I... I I don't know how they're going to get through, get around this, but the match itself with Jericho's mind, as long as he kind of keeps it within himself, I think could be really good. But it, this whole lead up has just been so weird. It's very strange booking because like Sammy has been kind of a baby face, but kind of not since the, the tail end of the four way pillar feud uh, back in like May and June. And Jericho himself, I thought, turned face at the end of the Callus feud, but then was still a heel. I, I, I don't know. Like these two, these are two of the weirdest characters on AEW TV right now, where I, I really can't tell if they're supposed to be faces or heels half the time. Uh, and Callus still seems to hate Jericho still, and obviously he's the biggest heel in the company at this point. So you'd think that would mean Jericho is going face. So yeah, I don't know where they're going with this. I don't really think it's been a good build. Um, I'm still intrigued, I guess, in the match given that they've never wrestled each other before and they've been together for so long. But, you know, I am kind of on the side that Jericho looks pretty washed this year. I know some people get really mad if you say that, but, I mean, he he had a really hard time keeping up with Will Ospreay uh, at All In, you know, botching a few spots towards the end. And, you know, I just think he's looked much worse in ring this year than he has in previous years in AEW. So, you know, to me, there's probably a ceiling on this match unless Jericho really over overperforms compared to what he's been doing lately. Mm-hmm. But you know, I'm, I'm, it's one of these matches where like, I don't think the build has been great, but I, I'm still intrigued to see it. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not complaining about getting the match, but I would like to see some clarity with these two characters going forward at this point. I agree. Especially because like the rest of the Jericho appreciation society after splitting off from him, they're kind of just still hanging out. Which is, <laughs> it is weird. It's like yeah. just five. It's like the just five guys of AEW or something. <laughs> it is very, or it's really strange. Yeah, it's it. It's like they just no. We don't have anything better to do, so let's just keep hanging out. They need some direction in, in the worst way, especially Daniel Garcia. But that's a story for another day. Well, they, Next, they seem to they te- they're teasing Callis recruiting Garcia now, so maybe that'll be his new direction. Is going nah, with he, the Callis family. He needs something, and that that could be really interesting. We'll see how that plays out. Next match, uh, John Moxley versus Ray Phoenix. Um, I, I just finished watching Collision this morning, like a good little podcast host, and it was interesting that Big Bill gets the match first uh, against Moxley, and then Phoenix basically 
gets in his face and challenges him. And Big Bill just looks at Penn and be like, yeah, you." he's like, Phoenix, you better go help your brother. He's about to get his ass whooped. I thought that was great. But John Moxley obviously beats Big Bill on Dynamite. And a pretty good opener. Not phenomenal, but good. And now he gets Ray Phoenix. And these the two styles are incredibly clashing. But I'm very, very intrigued to see how it'll work because I, I I don't recall them having a singles match before, but it wouldn't shock me if they did. I mean, look, at, I'm going to look it up real quick. I'm curious yeah. too. These uh, they did on they did well. Actually, they did not that long ago, August 23rd uh, of this year at Fighter Fest, which that was that was a very good match. The, the cage match rating is at 7.8. Um, I think I went like three and three quarters on it. So they, they did have a very good match. For uh, some reason, I thought that was Yuta, but it was Yuta who used the crowbar to take him out. Yeah. So that was their, that's their only previous singles match. So obviously that's a good sign. They, they, I'm sure they can have any, a great one uh, again. <laughs> I don't think you do a title change here, but you could at least justify why it would make sense to do a title change. I'm just curious... With the direction of where this goes with John Moxley and this title, so you can continue to do the open challenge gimmick like Orange Cassidy forever and ever and ever, or is there is this going to just be intertwined with the the um, expanding feud with Death Triangle and Blackpool Combat Club? Yeah, I'm not sure where they're going to go with it. I mean, um, you know, they, they've they've made this title feel so important that like you kind of forget the TNT title exists, honestly, um, mm-hmm. which is interesting. But yeah, I, 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 I'm into the open challenge gimmick. I mean, they can keep that going as far as I'm concerned. And Moxie's a great guy to do it with. But, um, you know, I mean, they have such a huge roster and not even just their roster, but like all the partnerships they have too, that, you know, there's, I'm sure he'll, he won't run out of challenges anytime soon. So... Yeah, I think you're right there. And there's two more matches left that have officially been announced, and I think that's uh, all we're one of the, One of them is on Rampage, I think. Or maybe not, because it's not listed on my... Because you're talking to Claudio and Eddie. What's the other one? Um, Christian Cage and Luchasaurus versus Darby. Oh, uh, yeah. Thing. Okay, they just don't have that on Cage Rush yet. I think yeah. that might be for Rampage. I'm not entirely sure. Because they didn't... Because at the end of the show last night, they didn't include that in the rundown when they were going over the dynamite grand slam card. Okay. So I think that's going to be for rampage grand slam. I yeah. think. So based on what Wikipedia has, which is what I'm going on, it's on dynamite and will air live, but that could easily be a rampage grand slam match. Cause they have two hours to fill instead of the normal one. And Sting's a pretty big draw, and he was the opening match on Dynamite. Oh, I thought or Rampage. Glance I thought I read that. Year. I thought I read that Rampage is only one hour this year, but maybe I'm wrong. Oh well, if that's the case, then that that would actually probably be a good thing for the live crowd. Let's just be honest. Yeah, it's kind of it's a long night when it's two hours. I haven't been there the last mm-hmm. two years. I'm not going <laughs> to complain if it's only one hour. Christian Cage and Luchasaurus versus Darby on a Let's preview it. Uh, Christian Cage is starting to recruit Nick Wayne and at Luchasaurus beat Darby Allen up before the, uh, his semifinal match in the AEW world championship tournament against Roderick strong. And then obviously you have Darby Allen and Sting who are 19 and 0 and teaming together. This, the, the whole deal with Christian is he's saying that, Hey, 
uh, you beat me with a tag team partner that I I'm I don't know. I've never teamed with before. You haven't beat me with Luchasaurus, and that's kind of the the renaissance for the booking of this match. But whatever this match ends up looking like, it could be really good because things going to come here to work. And I don't know what kind of ceiling it has or where we go from your storyline wise, but I'm really intrigued on how everything plays out. I assume Nick Wayne's going to turn on Darby eventually, but I mean, yeah. which feels kind of fast given he just got introduced to the company, but that does feel like what they're building to. Um, but yeah, I don't know. The, the match should be good. Um, I, I, I get the feeling this is a minority opinion. I'm kind of over the TNT title, fake TNT title reign for Christian. I don't think Christian needs the belt. And I think it's kind of, you know, it just kind of uh, has made the belt feel like it's in stasis a lot. So I would, um, I, I, I'm ready for them to move on, whether it's back to Darby or because obviously the Darby Luchasaurus thing is still continuing or whatever else they're going to do. Just God, please don't bring back Wardlow and have him be Luchasaurus. <laughs> like let Wardlow do something else for <laughs> love of God. But yeah, I'm ready for them to do something else with the TNT title. Um, but but other than that, you know, this should, yeah, it should be a good match. It looks like it could be a really good match, but the the one that I'm really intrigued by is what I think should go on last, and I don't think it will, and that's Claudio Castagnoli versus Eddie Kingston in a title versus title winner-take-all match for the Ring of Honor World Heavyweight title and the New Japan Strong Openweight title. This has obviously nearly 20 years of build, and they hate each other's guts. Eddie Kingston at All Out wore uh, a shirt that says uh, Claudio sucks eggs. No, that wasn't All Out. No, it was All Out, not All In. It wasn't, um, yeah. And these two have just been going to war with each other. Kingston came up just short at Super Card of Honor to win the Ring of Honor World uh, title. But he wasn't really beaten. He got caught in a roll-up. And I think that's a really important distinction here. I don't I, I think New Japan would be fine with Claudio holding the strong open weight title. But to me It wouldn't make a lot of sense though for the build though, because Eddie they're building Eddie yeah. versus Hanare. Yeah. Um Claudio can lose to Eddie here because and then Eddie would get this big moment in his hometown at a huge stage. Now it'd be nice if there was more than six thousand people in the building, but it, it's a special atmosphere. To me, it feels like Eddie's winning this match and it's going to be somewhat decisive, but you can also make the argument that they're going to try and string this along for another few months and maybe he wins it at final battle or, uh, or maybe even full gear. What's your take here, John? Cause this can go a million different directions. Yeah. I mean, it's really cool that they, they, they really referenced the Chikara storyline between the two of them uh, in the buildup on Dynamite, which I thought was really cool. With um, so, if people don't know the backstory there, um, Claudio and Eddie were, you know, they came up together in Chikara uh, when Claudio came over from Europe and was, uh, you know, not he was one of the trainers at one point in Chikara, and you know, Eddie obviously came through the Chikara system, and they had a really big feud um, that began in November 2008 and went all the way through the following year, November 2009. And the entire point of view was Eddie 
pointed out that Eddie basically was a heel at the time and Claudio was a face, but Eddie said that Claudio was no good, quote unquote. And he turned out to be right because uh, at that November 2009 show, which was, you know, Chikara used to do these season finales, um, Eddie lost a match that they called a respect match where the winner had to shake the other guy's hand and say they respect him. And after he lost that match to Claudio, he, he refused. And Claudio kind of like did the keelish things of that match. I don't remember exactly what he did. I think he just like, I don't think he like low blowed him. I think he just like beat him up on the outside or something. But the point is he started acting more like a heel in that match. And Eddie refused to give him that respect and refused to, um, you know, uh, to uh, adhere to the stipulation basically. And they brought that up in the promo last night on Dynamite where uh, Claudio said, you know, you're going to give me my respect that I just, that I still deserve. And this is, you know, a 14-year-old Chikara angle. And I love that Eddie, like, first of all, I love that they referenced that. And second of all, I loved Eddie's reaction where he's like, oh, you do remember. Because Claudio tries to act like he, you know, doesn't remember anything about Eddie Kingston and why, you know, they hate each other or whatever. So, um, so that was really cool. And at the end of the night, I should mention too, at the end of that season finale in 2009, um, Claudio was revealed as like, you know, a member of the big BDK stable that was like this big heel stable that took over Jakarta for the next two years. So it turned out that Eddie was right about him all along, and it was like a double turn. So that was it was a really cool storyline, um, you know. And I was a really I'm, I'm glad they brought it up as like, you know, the history of the two of them. Um, Claudio all time against Eddie is nine two and one. For those wondering what they're what the the feud looks like. I mean, Eddie's only beaten him twice, once in Chikara in May 2009, and uh, once on a Ring of Honor HD net taping in uh, twenty in the uh, 2300 Arena in a six-and-a-half-minute match, of all things, uh, in September 2009. But that is it. And Claudio's beaten him nine times. Um, but yeah, so definitely a lot of, a lot of wins for Claudio there. And you know, Claudio, Eddie kind of brought up the fact that like Claudio quote, didn't do business, you know, when he left, but basically saying he didn't do a job to him on the way out of Jakara, mm-hmm. which is true. He just kind of left in the middle of the, uh, in the middle of their, their tournament to name the first ever grand champion. He just kind of like, I don't know, left right in the middle of it. So yeah, I mean, and he, their last match was two before the, so they, their last match in Jakara was March, 2011 where Claudio beat him in New York City. And then after that, they did not face each other in a singles match until this year, the Supercard Auto match you mentioned in March March 31st, 2023. Um, and they didn't fa- face each other at all for 11 years. I mean, they didn't... Well, they were they were on the same team, I should say, uh, in June uh, 2022 at Blood and Guts. That was their first match together in 11 years. And, you know, they've had a few matches against each other now. The world title match, the Forbidden Door 10-man, and the Stadium Stampede, plus that tag match at All Out where uh, Claudio pinned Eddie again uh, with the uppercut. So we'll have to see what happens. It feels like an Eddie win, right? It feels like we're primed for that here. And it wouldn't surprise me, I guess, if they try to draw it out you know, further, but it feels like you just give Eddie the win in his hometown. And you know they've been building this Eddie versus Hinare strong title match in new japan i mean hanari is actually just been if you watch the new japan backstage promos hanari is like been berating eddie kingston for like ignoring him and 
get now giving Claudio this title shot before him. So I've heard that match. Um, I don't know. Did I, did I get this from a source? I'm not supposed to say. I'll just say it anyway. I've heard that match is happening at a, at the Las Vegas show in New Japan at the end of October. So Eddie would have to be strong champion, I guess, by the end of October. Um, that doesn't mean Claudio can't beat him here and Eddie can't win the belt back, I guess. But I would assume Eddie's probably just going to win. So that's uh, yeah. that's what I'm assuming. But we'll see. I mean, this is like, again, someone who lo- I love both these guys. I was a Chikara fan, um, you know, during the period where they feuded and, you know, during the BDK period and all that, like from pretty much the exact period when I was a Chikara fan was like 09 through like 2011. So like, you know, when they, when these two ride each other's throats. So I, you know, I know all their history together and, you know, I, I have been a fan of both guys forever. And like, this is my most anticipated match of the show. Like when they announce this, I'm like, okay, uh, I feel mm-hmm. pretty good about the fact that I'm going to the show and get to see this match. Cause I cannot wait to see this one. Yeah. I can't wait to see it either. And it's going to be uh, a really, really intriguing match. And not just with the storyline, but these two have some really good in-ring chemistry and Eddie's uh, really physical style can be countered by some of Claudio's um, really impressive athletic feats. And this, I think this should go on last, but it won't because you have MJF and Samoa Joe, but with how everything's been going with MJF, they theoretically they could put it first and it, it would actually make some sense. And whatever ends up happening, uh, this show looks really good, and I'm very envious that you get to go because I would love to be at this show. Yeah, uh, it looks it looks. I, I've had really good luck with AEW shows lately too because I went to All Out, and which ended up being really awesome. So I'm hopeful this will be just as good or close at least. Yeah, it it looks really good, but I I, I don't think unless you have anything, John. I I think that's everything. I think that we've done a really good job kind of covering grand slam and we obviously don't have anything as of yet for rampage which well i would say mention after the angle on dynamite last night with uh the bucks saving hangman from the embassy i would expect they're going to add a i would expect a six-man tag next week probably with the bucks and page against the embassy whether it's a you know swerve cage and one of the uh what's it called one of the god what the fuck are the gates names? of agony thank you i was gonna say authors of pain and that's like no wrong wrong team john but yeah one of the gates of agony or maybe it's swore in the gates of agony or cage of the gates of agony but i they'll add something i think with that i mean it seems obvious to me that they're gonna do the hung bucks versus the mogul embassy so now, did um, you notice last night in when hangman page got announced in the graphic um that it said he doesn't swerve when he drives. Yeah, that was pretty funny. Just uh, the, the little things uh, sometimes, and there's been a lot, I've been complaining a lot about how Tony Khan books himself in the corner and a lot of negative about this promotion, but the little things still get me every time. And that yeah. was just an excellent little bit. Yeah. I mean, we didn't talk about last night's Dynamite. I thought it was an okay show, um, you know, kind of up and down. But last week's re- collision, I thought was a very good show, especially the second hour. I mean, just, mm-hmm. you know, a, a really, really good show. Um, and finally felt like it was connected to the promotion again as the first real, you know, post-punk episode. 
I can't say every time I say post punk, I think of the cure or something, but no, the post, <laughs> the post CM punk, uh, collision, you know, I just, it felt like a show that was much more connected to the, uh, jet overall AW canon instead of being like, you know, this weird show that revolves around one weird guy. Mm-hmm. And so that, that was intriguing. I, I'm interested to see how, you know, but then, then you see the collision card this week and it's like two matches. So I, I don't, you know, I hope they keep up with like, uh, you know, I hope they keep up with the collision and keeping it important because, you know, last week's, you know, this past Saturday, I thought was a, a good show, uh, you know, especially the second hour, but I have to see how it goes, I guess. Yeah. And I, I, I had, I've been kind of down on collision as a whole and my Saturday nights nowadays, I was telling you uh, yesterday that. Um, they're consumed with college football because that's that's a good portion of what I do work wise, and the, it was so refreshing to have the show on while I was getting set up here this morning, and it just it felt like AEW, and I, I couldn't really explain it before. It Collision was a good show, but it didn't feel like as you said, it didn't feel like AEW at all. It just felt like it, it almost felt like somebody's efed. Where they were just messing around with the TW save with uh, AEW wrestlers, it, it just didn't feel right. And now it 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 does well, feel. So, like oh, you AEW. know what it felt like? It was, it was like a self insert Efed, where like <laughs> like punk, like the person was who's like booking it or whatever is like I'm CM Punk, so I'm going to make the whole show revolve around me. And it's like because he was feuding with the entire fucking Collision roster, it was so absurd. And it's like, oh, I got to make sure I give myself 40 minutes every week. It's like, okay. Like, what a, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't get the people who loved the punk collision era. Like, I, I, I'm not trying to come off like super anti-punk. I thought his first AEW run was great. You know, mm-hmm. his first AEW run was quite great. But, like, this second run was so bad. And, you know, I, I don't miss him at all, honestly. I think the first no-punk collision um, was just so much better than the you know, because I'm not really counting the show the weekend of all out because obviously that was like so chaotic and you know they didn't know they were going to have punk probably until the last second. But yeah, I mean like the first real like post punk all uh, collision I thought was just such a such a better show and such a breath of fresh air compared to the uh, punk collision era. So yeah, it, I'm really excited to see kind of how this continues to evolve and. Hopefully, Brian Danielson gets the book so we can see how uh, his incredible mind can work in the in the context of running a promotional show, and that really intrigues me. That collision just it it felt good, and Nigel is finally starting to feel like a good commentator. He wasn't for a long time. Yeah, he's the improved first, a lot. The first few shows, it just felt like it, it felt like he was just there to collect a paycheck. And now he's getting more and more ingrained, more and more comfortable, more and more knowledgeable. And I don't know what f- switch flipped. Maybe it was being in front of that all-in crowd because that was, in my opinion, his best performance. He was he was enjoying the hell out of being uh, in front of that crowd in his home country. And I don't know what happened with him, but it's he's been great. Yeah. So... Well, uh... Yeah, I'll let you go ahead. We can wrap this up now, I think. Yeah. Um, John, uh, I can't tell you how appreciative I am to uh, that you were able to come on the show. And it's always 
a joy talking wrestling with you. Where can the people find you and some of the work that you do? Um, so obviously for people who know, uh, who know about wrestling, Omaka say, uh, it's a very occasional podcast at this point as, uh, certain people will call it, uh, wrestling Omaka say, you know, I do about once a year now. Uh, we did an episode right here on the voice of wrestling podcasting network covering the end of the G1 climax. Um, but I feel, I feel like if you just hate the sound of my voice, you, you haven't been happy lately because, I did the guest spot here. I did the guest spot on the Super J cast last week. And I did the, obviously, the Omakase episode. So uh, I'm sorry if you hate hearing me. I'll try to I'll try to be gone for a while this time and uh, not come back until, until the Tokyo Dome. But yeah, the next Omakase, uh, again, right here on the Voice Wrestling Podcast Network, probably when uh, Tetsuya Naito wins the IWGP Waterbury title at the Tokyo Dome, since I tend to record when Naito does something. So, and uh, we'll see. Because I, I also be there, so that, you know, it'll make sense to record, you know, after uh, attending Wrestle Kingdom Live, yeah. which is going to be my first ever live Wrestle Kingdom, which is kind of crazy, considering it'll be my fourth trip to Japan. But I was going to say, for how often you've been to Japan, this being your first Wrestle Kingdom does feel weird. Yeah, I just I never had any interest in going during the winter. I like I don't know besides um, besides wrestling, I like you know looking at gardens and stuff, and like all the flowers are dead, you know. In yeah. <laughs> so I mean, Japan's a very beautiful country um, when you travel during a period of uh, you know like the cherry blossom season is incredible. Uh, even like just summer and like the other thing I really want to do is like fall because they're. Their, uh, their fall colors are supposed to be really amazing, but that might have to wait because my next my next trip after this will probably be um, the cherry blossom season again uh, because my partner Nicole has never been there during cherry blossom season. She really wants to do it. So that'll probably be like spring 2025. But, but yeah. That's, that sounds awesome. And, and as a former wrestling Omakase listener, I'm excited to hear you talk about that Naito's big win, and hopefully he finally gets his roll call. I know it'll be incredible. Just be, I, I have third row for that show, so I'll be right there at ringside. And if if he if he wins and finally gets the roll call, that'll be incredible to be there for. So definitely looking forward to that. And I we will be looking forward to hearing you talk about it. And that is our show here today. Oh, I should mention the Twitter is at Wrestle Omakase. By the way, not wrestling, just wrestle. Oh, yeah, because wrestling would put it at, what, 16 characters? Wrestling, yes, wrestling did not fit, which I think I f- forgot to do that gag. I used to say that at the end of every episode, and I forgot to do it because it had been so long at the end of the G1 episode. So thank you for reminding me of the gag. The new I, gag I is that we do once a, we only record once a year. So Yeah, and uh, <laughs> con- considering uh, that Wrestle Kingdom will be in the year 2024, you can at least continue that gag for that show. There you go. Perfect. Well, th- thank you very much, everybody, for joining. If you're listening on the Voice of Wrestling podcast feed, please go ahead and subscribe to our solo feed, The Good, The Bad, and The Hungy. You can follow me on Twitter at The Real Forno, and you can follow the show on Twitter at Good, Bad, Hungy, and join the Voice of Wrestling Discord, where uh, we have our own channel and we have some good conversations in there. Until then, enjoy Grand Slam. Have a great day. 
Hey everybody, my name is Jesse Collings, and I want to tell you all about my show, The Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast, here on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. On The Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast, we do a thorough analysis on the biggest issues and trends within the pro wrestling industry. We talk a lot about pro wrestling media, we talk a lot about fan culture and wrestling's place within general pop culture, and we talk about the broader influences that are shaping the way we discuss and analyze the pro wrestling industry. We've had some of the brightest minds in the pro wrestling intelligentsia on the show, including WrestleNomics host Brandon Thurston, both Rich Krejci and Joe Lanza from the Flagship Wrestling Podcast, Trevor Dame from the Through the Years podcast, and a whole lot more. This isn't a show for hot takes. It's not a show recapping the latest episode of television. This is a show focusing on the biggest topics in pro wrestling and doing a deep dive on the real stories behind the surface level analysis you might find elsewhere. The Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd really appreciate it if you gave us a try. Thanks.